Tuesday, July 27th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, Asit Sharma. Thanks for being here. Chris, thank you for having me. Let me just say up front, I have no idea what the audio sounds like. We, due to extenuating circumstances, Asit and I are flying solo on the audio. So if the audio is not good, it'll be better tomorrow, I promise. But uh, you know, Hey, Chris, again, there, there is a really old... French movie. It used to be famous, but you know, time flows. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of this, but I think it's called "Don't Shoot the Piano Player." <laughs> and I feel like we're—that's ne- the never. theme for our audio today. <laughs> don't shoot the piano player. <laughs> I've not heard of that, but after this episode, I'm going to go to IMDb and look it up. Um, we've got home improvement. We've got aircraft. We're going to start with automotive. Tesla's second quarter profit was not only higher than expected; it came in north of one billion dollars for the first time ever. There's always a lot to get to with Tesla, whether it's the actual results or comments on the conference call. I'm I'm curious what stood out to you. Well, Chris, I'm impressed by these results. I mean, Tesla, despite a lot of challenges, had a great quarter in sales, sales up 98%. But the thing that really leaps off the page is this automotive gross margin, which has improved about three percentage points over the last four quarters enabling them to generate that higher profit. And they did it without a lot of these regulatory credits. So in their automotive revenue, they're um, transferring credits. They're getting revenue from the sale of governmental credits. That's a smaller and smaller component of revenue. So what you got here was a great sales increase in a supply-constrained quarter in which the company had to swap out chips and rewrite firmware, rewrite software on its automobiles. They still managed to generate a bunch of net income, $600 million plus in, in free cash flow. So before we get to the more colorful details, which always surround Tesla, let's give them an A for this report. Now I want to know about the colorful de- details. <laughs> I mean, yes, so, give, him okay, so the, give him an A for this report, and I'll, I'll, just one other data point I'll add. Yeah, Their please. profit was 10 times higher than a year ago. I, I mean, it's just staggering when you see that kind of growth. And I, even allowing for the pandemic, it's, it's just incredible. But let's move on to the color. Yeah, so one thing which I think some shareholders are going to feel sad about and some will appreciate, yesterday, Elon... Elon Musk, said that he's not going to participate in conference calls going forward. Now, I'm old enough to remember several quarters ago when Elon was dissing the the very analysts who were sort of responsible for the information flow that helped Tesla raise money in the capital markets. But I think everyone will agree with his sort of mercurial temperament. Maybe for a couple of quarters, that's good to have less commentary, more results. I also like that Tesla now is sort of proving out its ability to operate at scale. So it looks like it could be less reliant on secondary stock offerings, debt. Just, hey, if you can plow this amount of profits and cash flow through each quarter, then you'll begin to accumulate those on your balance sheet and self fund all those new adventures. So that's one part of it. And I think the other bit of color for me was just the further delay in the Cybertruck. Of course, I think the reasoning is good. Uh, this is We're seeing this throughout the automotive industry, and you and I have talked about this. The chip shortage is sort of hammering the ability of automakers to innovate their, their latest models and produce. So, I guess we can give them a pass there. But in terms of Elon being mum, 
on these quarterly reports. I'm actually all for it. What, what about you, Chris? Well, I, I mean, I think, uh, first of all, I wouldn't, I wouldn't assume that this means he's never going to be on a conference call. True. I, it, you know, he, he's, it's perfectly within his purview to change his mind on that. Um, I, I'm just reminded of uh, the episode a couple of years ago with Twitter and sort of him essentially backing off Twitter or, or at least calming down what he was posting on Twitter. And that seemed to work out well for shareholders. So I, I don't think if you're a sh- like, look, from an entertainment standpoint, yes, I would love him to be on every quarterly conference call. If you're a shareholder of Tesla, I don't think you're looking at this and thinking this is to the detriment of the business. True, true that. We'll see. I mean, let's see. Maybe next quarter he jumps back in. <laughs> but at least that was the message after earnings. Let's move to the skies. Aircap is the largest aircraft leasing company in the world. And it is about to get even larger because earlier today, antitrust regulators in the European Union approved Aircap's $30 billion bid to buy General Electric's aircraft leasing business. This is not an industry I pay a whole lot of attention to, but this you pointed this out this morning. A deal like this between the two biggest companies in the industry, are you at all surprised this got approved? I, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, a little bit. I'm not, I'm not trying to tell the antitrust regulators how to do their job, and I have nothing against either of these businesses. Just on the surface, it's a little surprising, right? Yeah, I think so, because this is a case of the really strong just getting stronger and bigger. Aircap had its financing already lined up for the deal. They didn't seem to have any concerns that there would be antitrust issues. And the European regulators are known for raising their hand and saying, wait wait a minute, guys, everyone slow down here. We, we need to really take a look at this deal. So, to get this sort of clean bill of slate uh, in the merger is, I mean, it's great for Aircap. They've got a very simple business model. Because they're already so big, they get huge discounts from the airplane manufacturers. Then they lease those planes back out to various airlines at a nice profit. They've had a focus over the last several years in decreasing the age of their fleet, focusing on newer technology aircraft. That business model is working very well for them. They took some hits last year when all travel stopped, but because they're so well diversified among wide body and narrow body jets and and among carriers of different sizes, it really was sort of just a blip on the, the longer term road to dominance in this industry. They had last quarter a record number of aircraft that they leased, so they're going to benefit as now the world comes back closer to normal. Delta variant notwithstanding. So, you've got here a company, if you like, the business model, which may be poised to show some more of the strength that its fans have been advocating for. And last point that I want to say on this before um, hearing what, what your take on this is, our colleague Jim Gillies and I have both sort of been fans of this company as a value play. We were chatting about it last year uh, during the spring when everything looked bleak during the pandemic. And I think that robust, diversified business models sort of proved out the, the points that, that our friend Jim was making and, and that I was making, too. This now, with, with this deal, they just become bigger and stronger. It's hard to see anyone else ever being a viable challenger to their business. Now, people will be, the, the, the various other lessors will be vying for the number two spot. 
And you look at the market cap for AirCap, I mean, it's basically back where it was pre-pandemic. So, um, it'll be interesting to see as this deal progresses, as they close it, you know, what, what this business looks like a year from now. I, to me, I, you know, part of me looks at this deal and thinks, if you're a general electric shareholder, I, I, I should just add the descriptor, long-suffering. If you're a long-suffering <laughs> GE shareholder, you're probably happy about this deal because it's... Uh, it's one less thing in the conglomerate, right? It's for whatever good that may have done the bottom line for GE, it enables Larry Culp and his team to just get more focused about writing the ship that is GE. Um, but from Aircap standpoint, uh, yeah, I, I, I want to see where this business is in 12 months. Yeah, maybe we'll revisit next, this time next year. To borrow from Larry David, second quarter results for Sherwin-Williams were Pretty good. Profits a little lower than expected. Revenue in line with expectations. Shares of the paint maker down about two percent. I don't know. This this seems like a a return to normalcy. Um, and I say that because shares of Sherwin Williams, even with the slight drop today, are up more than thirty percent over the past year. And this is about as slow and steady and boring a business as you can find. Um, but if you're a shareholder. Holy cow, has this been rewarding. You know, Chris, when you're watching the paint dry, you're waiting and waiting. But when your guests finally come, they look at your beautiful walls, you feel so great. And this is the case, right? If you've been a Sherwin-Williams shareholder for the last 10 years and reinvested your dividends, you are up 1,100%. Now, in the, the these near-term periods, it can move around a little bit. I think this is just shareholders, some nearer term shareholders taking profits, but a strong picture here. We had a 17% year over year increase in the quarter. Um, this was a quarter in which things, as you mentioned, sort of returned to normal. The, the retail sales that they've been running off of for the last several quarters took a breather because we're doing a little bit less of the do-it-yourself at-home projects, as more of us are now having to either go back to work or start a more hybrid environment, where maybe we're showing up a couple of times a week in person. Uh, the company, though, saw a lot of solid strength in architectural paints, the types of paints that and um, supplies that are associated with economy and economy that's kicking into gear, which is exactly what the U.S. economy is doing. So here's another diversified business model. It's got that side, which is very business focused. It's got the consumer side. One drops off a little bit; the other takes over. You have to like that. And, and I want to say too the the ability of this company just to generate solid cash flow, maybe that's a theme for me today, is also extremely impressive. Before we came on air, I was looking at, just for the last year, its um, net income and cash flow generation. So, you're looking over the last trailing 12 months at $2.1 billion in net income, but $3.3 billion in free cash flow. This is a hugely strong business. And uh, I think, too, it's a company I want to look at, actually not next year, but in five years. I want to see if Sherwin-Williams will continue to be this paint-drying-on-the-wall company where it's up another several hundred percent as you just take a periodic look at it. Yeah, without dividends, 
It's up 10 times in the last 10 years. In the last 20 years, it's up more than 35 times in value. And if I can ever shut up long enough about this business, I am going to buy some shares. I mean, it's very high on my watch list because it's just, as I've said before, nobody buys a home and thinks to themselves, all this, this looks good to me. These colors are good. I'm not going to change anything. And, you know, and you think about... Um, the rise of extreme weather and what that does to exterior paint. Um, I don't know. It seems like the life cycle for um, exterior paint for homes is getting shorter, and that's only going to benefit the Sherwin-Williams of the world. That's a great point. I I also want to point out that with that sort of long-term demand that's just always there, they have a choice. You know, they can take their foot, management can take their feet off the, the gas pedal but they continue to invest. They're, they're buying back shares, which, okay, is an investment when you're generating so much cash. You can, you can repurchase uh, a quite a, a decent amount of shares. They, I think they bought back about 3.1 million shares in this quarter they just report on. But they opened 25 new stores. So they're continuing to get that retail footprint expansion, keep it in gear. And they're also really investing in technology. It's a company that you wouldn't think is a great R&D vehicle. But over the years, that's exactly what Sherwin-Williams has done. It's one of the things they've done best is to keep up with the formulation of their products. So, Chris, when you and I, or let's say commercial builders, have to go in and repaint the exterior of a house, they can sell a a better formulation and at least show that, well, this one will have a little bit longer shelf life. Now, of course, they don't want to optimize it to where we don't want to replace it every few years. There's a there's a certain amount of engineering you want to to be very careful with. But I think Sherwin Williams knows how to hit that sweet spot. Well, and you point something out about uh, the management at Sherwin Williams that I think is so important for any business. I mean, we're talking about paint. We could be talking about a, a cloud business, a software business. We could be talking about anything. Um, and it's one of those skills that's so important and doesn't really show up except with time. And it is the way that they manage the business, sort of the management of the money, the capital allocation. How good is a management team at deciding we're going to buy back shares, um, we're going to increase the dividend? How good are they at picking locations for their stores? It's the sort of thing that you you want that to matter, and it's very important, but it's only going to reveal itself. It's it's one of those things that you look back and you're like, oh, yeah. Now that we look back over the last ten years, yeah, they really are good at that. They really. It turns out this this management team really is good at capital allocation. There's so many companies, Chris, that reach the state of stable cash flows and pretty nice growing revenue and profits, but fewer are the companies that can take that state and optimize it over a long period of time. So absolutely, it's a rare quality in a management team to do this for more than a few years, let alone throw in some decades and just keep up great performance that pleases shareholders. So we we definitely have to give management kudos there. And I think that's been a a theme lately as we're looking at companies together. How good are they at allocating capital? This one gets some solid uh, grades from me. Asa Charma, great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thanks a lot, Chris. Fun as always. 
As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Austin Morgan. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.